Father in heaven, we are grateful this morning to be together uh, as brothers in Christ who are grateful to be together as your church, as your body. Father, we're grateful to be able to study the word. We pray as well for our brothers and sisters, your church in Senegal, uh, in West Africa. Father, we pray for the work of these men who are here with us today. and We're reminded of um, just how great and grand the mission of your church really is. Uh, Father, it's easy to be focused on our own little world, uh, much less um, just here in Dallas, the needs here, but to recognize that you're working literally through your body, through your church all over the world. Father, pray that you would lift them up. We pray for their work. Father, we pray that it would bear fruit, that the gospel would transform uh, the lost. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to spend most of our time this morning, Matthew 5. Matthew 5, 17 through 20, but before we get there, I want you to turn to Luke 24. Luke 24. If you are with us uh, in our study through the life of Moses, I read from this same passage. I'm going to read it again as we begin. And if you're just starting with us uh, this week, we're, we're so glad you're here. Welcome. We are working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached. A sermon about what it means to seek first the kingdom of God. And this morning... Uh, is one of my uh, favorite parts of the Sermon on the Mount for a lot of reasons, but this represents a shift, a shift from thinking about what it looks like to reimagine, uh, to rethink what kingdom, the kingdom life looks like, uh, from the Beatitudes to the idea of being salt and light, to be a city on a hill, and now transitioning into, uh, you've heard it said, that's what we'll do next week, uh, you have heard it said, but I say to you, and this marks a turning point in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll read it together. Before we get there, this is Luke 24, and the story uh, that uh, we're going to look at very briefly is the story of Jesus' resurrection. After Jesus rose from the dead, his disciples were afraid, they were confused, uh, they didn't know quite what to do, they had scattered, and on the road to Emmaus, several of them are talking with each other. They are trying to figure out what just happened at this point. Uh, the, the women have been to the tomb and they've re realized and recognized that Jesus was not there. And so they have gone to tell uh, what they have seen, what they have heard. And now that's more confusion. Uh, that initial announcement, if you can imagine, was not met with immediate <laughs> trust and faith. Uh, but it was bewilderment. Uh, what do we do with this information? And of course, as Jesus has, had done time and time again after he rose from the dead, he, he appeared to them. But when he appeared, they didn't recognize him. They saw him, but they did not recognize who he was. Okay, and so we pick up the story. Uh, it says, verse 15, it says, While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near. He went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? I love that. <laughs> you don't, do you not realize what just happened, right? And he says, what things? And they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we hoped that he was to be the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. 
They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find the body, they came back saying that, uh, that they had even seen visions of angels who had said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. I want you to notice a few things as we begin this morning. The first is this, that the disciples did not know as much as you think they might have known. That as they were with Jesus, as they saw him crucified, died, and buried, and here Jesus even is, appeared to them after he has rose again, they were clueless. These disciples who knew the scriptures, and this marks a turning point, obviously, in the history of the world. Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he appears to them, and it is so drastic, so revolutionary, that Jesus has to sit down and reteach them everything. And where does he begin? He begins with Moses and the prophets. The Old Testament that they knew so well, and he says, you need to relearn it. Because beginning in the Moses and the prophets, you will find me. Everything that I said, you need to relearn it. Even who I am to you, you need to rethink. The resurrection changed everything. And this morning, what we're going to look at is this idea of how revolutionary really was Jesus. As New Testament Christians, I think a lot of times we're like these disciples. We can be confused about who he is. We can be confused about what he says. But more than that, we can be confused about what he has done, his death and resurrection, what that means for the whole of Scripture. Especially what I just said, as New Testament Christians. Have you ever said that before? When we say that, we think, well, it's because we're living in New Testament times. But I want to challenge you this morning. I know that each of you has a Bible, and in that Bible you have an Old and New Testament. But I want to challenge you this morning. That we, especially in modern evangelical Christianity, have so separated those two halves of this book that we think they're two separate stories. And Jesus this morning in the Sermon on the Mount is going to challenge us that we have one story of His grace. One story of his love. One story of the gospel. It begins in Genesis. It ends in Revelation. Jesus here on the road to Emmaus is teaching a Bible study. (laughs) The risen Lord is teaching a Bible study to his disciples. And he's using Moses, the Pentateuch, and the prophets to teach them about who he is. This morning, Jesus will tell us this in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 17. He says, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets, but I've not come to abolish them, I've come to fulfill them. I think as modern evangelicals, a lot of times we think, Jesus has come, it's changed everything, and that means this Old Testament is exactly that, it's old, it's obsolete. You know, at at worst, it's wrong for us to read, Uh, it's dangerous, it can lead to legalism, At best, it's irrelevant. And this morning, Jesus is going to help us to understand what is the place of the law of God for the Christian? What place does God's law have for the Christian? Now that Christ has risen from the dead, 
now that it is finished, not only this side of the Reformation, but this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what place does the law have for the Christian? And Jesus will tell us this. I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them. And he has fulfilled the law in three ways this morning. We'll look at that briefly, and then I'll send you to your tables. Three ways that Christ has fulfilled the law. First, Christ has fulfilled the law's promises. Christ has fulfilled the law's promises. Second, Christ has fulfilled the law's commands. Christ has fulfilled the law's commands. And lastly, Christ has fulfilled the law's demands. Christ has fulfilled the law's demands. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. I would argue that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation. Every story, every verse, every word points to Him. Everything is about Him. So let me pray for us, and we'll dive in this morning. Father, we pray and ask that as we read this challenging few verses, as much as the Sermon on the Mount is, that the sermon of your Son, Jesus, would penetrate deeply into our hearts, that we would begin to think about your Bible differently, about the Old Testament differently, and perhaps even about your Son differently, and what it means to live as men who've been called, yes, to stand on the finished work of Christ, but as Paul said, to be more and more conformed into that image and more and more conformed to the work of your Son. We ask in His strong name. Amen. First, the first, thing, first way that I want you to think about Christ's fulfillment of the law is this, that He's fulfilled the law's promises. I want you to again look at verse 17. He says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Real quickly, what he's saying, and this is the sum total. The law meaning... The Pentateuch, the Torah, right? It's, it's the Torah, it's the law, it's not just the Ten Commandments, it's the whole thing. But then he also includes the prophets. And any time that you saw that, the law and the prophets, it's basically the Hebrew Scriptures. And so what Jesus is saying here is, I've not come to do away with your Bibles. Remember, all that's all they had, the Hebrew Scriptures. I've not come to do away with everything you've been taught. I've not come to abolish that, but I am the fulfillment of every prophecy, every single law. I've not come to abolish them, but I've come to fulfill them. And then he says it this way, verse 18, he says, Truly I say to you, until all heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Until everything's fulfilled, until all is accomplished, there is not one aspect of the law, Jesus says that is going to pass away. So our question this morning is this, what do we do with that? What do we do with that as the people of God now? When was the last time that you read the law? As the psalmist in 119 says, that you meditated on it day and night. Do you love it? Because I think for us, and I'm at the front of the line here, we live in a, in, a, in a kind of a world, an evangelical world, where we kind of think Jesus said the exact opposite. That that's exactly what he did. It's irrelevant now, right? It, it, I mean, Christ died, he rose again, the law, and Jesus says, no, I, I've not come to abolish it, but I came to fulfill it. And those are two completely different things. The first way, the law's promises, 
the law promises much, and you might not think about it that way. Now, first, we recognize that Jesus says the law and the prophets. Obviously, the, prof, the prophets promised a lot. They promised about the coming Messiah. 2 Corinthians 1.20, Paul says, All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So Paul is saying every promise, every promise of the scriptures finds their yes in Jesus Christ. Even uh, if you think about Matthew, um, we, we didn't study the first four chapters before we got to the Summer of the Mount. But up until this point, Matthew, in his gospel writing, has said it this way four times, okay? Matthew 1.22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Matthew 2.23, Jesus went, he lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Matthew 3.3, for this is he who was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Matthew 4.14, so what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Time and time again, Matthew will pause in his narrative as he tells the story of the gospel to specifically point out that this thing that just happened in Jesus' life was to fulfill the prophecy. Christ is the fulfillment of every prophecy, every single one. But he hasn't just fulfilled the prophecies of Scripture. He's also fulfilled the law, and in particular, the promises of the law. At John 5, 39 Jesus says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. That is they that bear witness about me. And then he says, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. In other words, if you think about what Moses wrote, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the law itself, Jesus is saying, If you believed in the law, you would believe of me, because the law points to me. So you think, okay, well, what, what could the law actually promise us? Isn't it just a bunch of commands? Isn't it just a bunch of things we're supposed to do? What does the law actually offer? Well, if you remember, the law came in the context of a covenant. God's covenant vow, his covenant promise to us. And every time God gave a command, he also gave a promise to those who would be able to fulfill his command. Deuteronomy 28.9, the Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself, as God has promised to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord, your God, and walk in your ways. So Deuteronomy, the giving of the law, again. And here it is. The Lord is going to establish you as his people, just as he promised to you, big if, if you keep his commandments. Our problem is that because we have broken his commands over and over and over again, the promises of God have now come into question in our life. The Old Testament promises of God, the Old Testament promises of God have come into question in our life. What do we do with that? Christ has fulfilled those promises for us. Those promises have not been abolished, They've not been done away with. The law has not been done away with. But Christ has come. He has fulfilled every single command so that every single promise that was promised to us in the law could also be fulfilled on our behalf. And so we must not think, well, none of this matters anymore. In fact, it matters a great deal. It's exactly why Jesus came. 
It's why he died. It's why he rose again. In fact, I would say that you cannot truly understand the cross and you cannot truly understand the empty tomb unless you begin to understand what the law and the prophets were waiting for, what the law and the prophets were pointing to. Great J.C. Ryle says it this way, Let us beware of disposing the Old Testament. Let us never listen to those who would bid us to throw it aside as an obsolete, antiquated, useless book. The Old Testament is the gospel bud. And the New Testament is the gospel full in flower. These are no light matters, he says. Much infidelity begins with an ignorant contempt of the Old Testament. Much infidelity, he says. In other words, a lot of our doubts, a lot of our doubt that we experience every single day, J.C. Ryle says, begins with a wrong, erroneous view of the Old Testament. But it doesn't matter. And this morning, Jesus reminded it matters a great deal. Christian, it matters a great deal. Not only because we need to know the promises that have been fulfilled in Christ, but we need to know the commands that have been fulfilled in Christ. Number two, Christ has fulfilled the law's commands. Jesus continues, verse 19. And as much as going to be his style, he's going to keep ratcheting it up for us. And we're going to see next week why this is such a big deal. Verse 19, he says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same. So in other words, if you believe in your own life that the commandments of God no longer matter and you relax them, and then if you even do likewise, you begin to teach others to do the same, then you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. But whatever does them, and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So first Jesus says, look, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets, I've come to fulfill them. And then he goes on and he says, listen, if you relax any of these commandments, if you for a moment don't fulfill all of them, then you are least in the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Now if you do them, Jesus says, if you do them, you will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, as you hear this this morning, there's really one of two camps that you might kind of come out on, two extremes. Some of you right now are hearing this, and you're thinking, okay, I don't quite know what to do with that, because I thought God had really abolished all of this stuff, and isn't that what grace is all about? That really, because of grace, the law no longer matters, we don't need to follow it. Right? It's just grace, it's love, it's, it's Jesus. And that's a big word called anti-nomianism. Have you heard that before? <coughs> Nomos means law, anti-law, right? Now, there could be other of you this morning who might tend to be towards the opposite. I've been both, by the way. Uh, you, you could be what's called a legalist. Now, of course, no one in here wants to raise their hand and say, yes, I'm a legalist, <laughs> right? But you could be, be hearing this this morning and say, finally, I mean, that's exactly what we need to do. We've got to recover God's law, right, in our nation, in our world, right? If we could just all start to follow the law, then everything would be right in the church. Everything would be right in our city. Everything, that is exactly what we need to do. It's all about following the law and doing what it says. Legalist, right? Legal, law, one who follows it. Now, these two camps... 
and they are extreme, really do the same thing. And I want to show you what I mean. First, the antinomian. Really, the way that that might look in today's world, more than anything else, is kind of a new phenomenon, particularly in our country, in the United States, but also the United Kingdom in Western Europe. And that's called moral relativism. Have you heard this term thrown around a little bit, more and more? And the idea is this, that the morals that once governed and shaped the Western world, that were kind of all agreed upon, this is what it means to be a moral person, no longer have weight and bearing in our society. That really these morals are relative according to a culture. So depending on the culture, morals could be absolutely relative, that there's really no such thing as an absolute. They're absolutely relative. There's no way to know what is right and wrong. Absolutely. And there's two ways to think about this. Stanley Fish, who's associated, he's a theorist uh, in post-modernity, he says there's really two ways to think about this. The first is that you just don't believe that there are morals at all. That's the first. And he says that really there's not very many people that you will meet out there that actually believe that. There's no one that actually says, listen, there's no such thing as morals. But the second, the second which he argues for, he argues for, right? He's saying this is the way to live. I want you to listen carefully. He says, the second says, that I believe that there are moral absolutes, okay? That there is such a thing as moral absolute, but there is no device or test or algorithm or argument for determining which ones are right and which ones are wrong. And he's saying that is true. Do you understand what he's doing? He's saying, yes, there is such a thing as moral absolute, but we have no way to know which one's right and which one's wrong. I think that's the way most people live today. And the way that we do that is when we remove God, the person of God, who is our absolute, who is our algorithm, as Fish says, who is our device, our mechanical test. When we divorce God from his law and we take God out of a society, then how do you determine what's right and wrong? You can't, can you? But what I want you to see this morning is for the antinomian and the legalist, they've done the exact same thing. They have divorced, they've separated God from his law. The antinomian, all they see is law, 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 and they think, well, it doesn't matter anymore. But they fail to realize that attached to this law is God's covenant love for his people, that everything he commanded us came in love. But the legalist is doing the exact same thing. They have separated law from God. And rather than follow the per person of God and see the person of God in their life, all they see is law, 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 law. In many ways, you could see this as a parable of the prodigal son, right? The two sons, antinomian and legalist. They're really the same thing. Sinclair Ferguson has a new book out, recommend it to you. I've only just started. It's very good so far, uh, called The Whole Christ. And it's about this controversy between antinomianism and legalism. And he says this, he says, Although in one sense antinomianism is the opposite error from legalism, in another sense it's the equal area. Because it similarly abstracts God's law from God's person and character. And it fails to appreciate that the law that condemns us for our sins was given to us to teach us how not to sin. 
They're both the same thing. So this morning, then, what do we do are to do when Jesus says, not a dot, not an iota is going to pass away from the law? Paul, I think, reorients us. Paul himself reorients us, and he says this, Romans 3 says, Do we then overthrow the law by our faith? By no means. We uphold the law. All right, so how does that work? Christ has fulfilled every single command of God. We talk about that all the time, don't we, when we talk about who Jesus was, that he was sinless. But what we mean by that, that he did not sin, is not that he just didn't fail, but there's a positive aspect to that. He was obedient to every single one of God's commands. And not just the letter of the law, right? Not only what it was on the outside, but down to the heart, down to the root of the law itself. We need to begin to realize that the law is good. Our problem is that we are bad and we can't keep it, which is the whole point of the gospel. Christ fulfilled the commands of the law for you and for me. And Paul says that he was obedient, obedient to the point of even death, death on a cross. So finally this morning, Christ has fulfilled the law's demands, and I'll send you to your tables. Verse 20, it ratchets up even once more, and this will lead into our discussion next week. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So, follow kind of his progression. I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. And then he says, nothing in the law is going to pass away until all is accomplished. And then now he's saying, listen, unless your righteousness exceeds, not matches, if it exceeds, if it exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, unless it does, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, how righteous were the scribes and Pharisees? Ah, see, it's a trick question, right? Remember our discussion of antinomianism, legalism, right? On one hand, you might say, well, they were righteous, right? They kept the law. But they had separated God from the law. And this morning, what Jesus is beginning to try to help us to understand is that if that's what you do, if you keep the law, but you don't love the God of the law, then you're not righteous at all. And so this morning when he says your righteousness needs to exceed, what he's saying is, listen, yeah, you need to keep the law, but you need to understand why you're keeping it. You need to love the God of the law first. As we said a couple weeks ago, as, as Kant said, it's not enough that you would keep a moral ethic. The question is, why are you doing it, right? And so we're going to see this over and over and over again. Next week it begins, right? This idea, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus will use this pattern over and over again. So I just want to show you an example real quickly. If you have your Bible, Matthew 5, 21. He says, if you heard, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. Okay, so there's one of the Ten Commandments, right? You shall not murder. So Jesus says, you've heard that. You've heard that part of the law. But then he says, but I say to you. Okay, so he's going to repeat the law. In doing so, he's what? He's affirming it. It's not passed away. 
right? It's not been abolished. It's been fulfilled in Christ. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. Whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Verse 22, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Have you ever called someone a fool? It's a little tame, actually. (laughs) And you think, wow. Wow. Jesus is helping us to see, listen, you could think you're righteous because you're saying, I haven't killed anybody. Good for me. And he's saying, no, you don't get it. It's deeper than that. You see, you have harmed the image of God in your heart and in your thoughts about another person who's been made in the image of God. Not only your thoughts, but the words that you've spoken could even kill, could destroy. That when you call someone who's been made in the image of God a fool, it's as good as breaking the commandment not to murder them. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees. The Pharisees say, look at us. Hey, we haven't killed anybody. And Jesus says it's deeper than that. It's deeper than that. And so what do we do? The law not only gives us commands, but it also demands a lot of us, doesn't it? It demands something of us. And what it demands is not just moral perfectionism. It demands a righteous heart. And for those of us who are not righteous, which Paul says is not one of us, it also demands payment. The law demands payment. It demands punishment. Because in our unrighteousness, we have broken the law. Not only has Christ fulfilled the law's promises, not only has he fulfilled the law's commands, but what I want to end with this morning is that Christ has also fulfilled the law's demands. The law demands perfection, it demands righteousness, and it demands punishment for sin. And that is why Jesus Christ died and rose again. And that is why it's so important that you understand the connection between the old and the new. Paul says in Romans 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. I want you to listen. This is verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now listen to this. In order that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law for you and for me. Every part of it. Not just what it commanded, but its demand for the penalty of sin. Paul says the wages of sin is death. Why? Paul says here, Romans 8, so that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us. Jesus fulfilled the law, so the law would be fulfilled in us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. Our failure to keep the law was put on the back of Jesus Christ. And he died for it. But not only that, Christ 
gave us, imputed to us, His ability to keep the law. His righteousness, His goodness, His robes traded in for our rags. And so as we move in next week, you have heard it said, but I say to you, you're beginning to feel this tension, this tension between keeping and not keeping. You're going to begin to feel exposed as a man. You're going to say, I've done that so many times. And this morning, if you do not know Jesus Christ, I want you to be incredibly uncomfortable. Because Jesus is trying to help you to see is that you are not righteous. That down to your core, down to your heart, you could try to keep the law as much as you can, but deep down, you are desperate, you are needy, you are poor in spirit. But if you are a Christian this morning, and next week when you come, and you hear Jesus say, you've heard it said, but I say to you, and you realize just how exposed and how needy you are, I want you to think back on the Beatitudes. I want you to be reminded, this is exactly why we come to a Bible study. And we remind one another of who Christ is, that he died and that he rose again, so that we might now be righteous, not because of anything that we are, but because of who he is. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. Father, we thank you. Uh, Lord, this is a weighty topic this morning. It pushes against so many of our sensibilities. Um, God, it's easy uh, to fall into one of these traps. I've done so many, many times. The trap of the extremes of antinomianism or legalism. Lord, I pray that you would orient our hearts this morning on the truth of your word. That as together as we talk about these things at our tables, that we'd see how much this practically plays out in our lives. And Lord, that as we study you, as we hear the words of your son Jesus, that not only we be reminded that the law matters, but why it matters. Because your son Jesus Christ died for them, he fulfilled them, and he's fulfilled their demands as well. Lord, we pray that as we leave this place, we would leave with worshipful hearts, thankful of all that you have done for us in Christ Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen.